Well, good morning, everyone, or afternoon for some of you. And uh, as some of you will know me, I'm Carl Pearson, um, who teaches here, and I'm I'm filling in for for Nelson today, who um, in, in introducing um, Professor Carl Anderson. So, since time is ticking, we'll we'll get started, and and just to to give you a little bit of an introduction of Carl. Um, he holds an AB in folklore and mythology with a focus on medieval Scandinavia from Harvard College and a PhD from the Department of Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic at the University of Cambridge. He's currently a lecturer for Signum University's Introduction to Old Norse course and also teaches in postgraduate university programs for English languages for English language teachers in Colombia, South America. Besides work on medieval and Germanic philology, he's published on topics in bilingual education and in indigenous languages of Colombia. So uh, we we welcome Carl for this this third session on on Tolkien's legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, and I will now turn it over to you, Carl. Thank you, thank you, Carl. I don't get to say that very often. <laughs> um, so welcome, everyone. <laughs> um, we are gathered here uh, today on May the 4th, uh, 2017, for the final session in a seminar series in which we have talked um, about the legend of a boy whose family originated from divine powers, but who was raised in obscurity um, as though an orphan, though later he got his father's sword restored to him by a guardian powerful in magic and then went forth to accomplish great deeds that would enable him to save the universe. And so today we will conclude our examination of the hero Sigurd, um, from whom we will learn that if Luke Skywalker has indeed re avoided romantic entanglements, we don't know yet, um, then he has probably so far been wiser than our Volsung hero. Um, May the fourth be with you. So if you are just joining us, our earlier seminars on J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Legend of, uh, Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, a book published in 2009, but containing two narrative poems in modern English that retell stories um, known from the medieval Volsung Niblung cycle of legends, um, we talked about the medieval sources on which Tolkien's poems are based, and we started to look at the story itself, particularly the way in which Tolkien began his retelling of the legends quite differently than any of his medieval sources. So I'm just going to make sure I can try to see all the questions here as they come along. Um, there we go. See that a little better. Um, so. Um, in his version, Tolkien explicitly gives his poetic retellings a more cosmic scope by introducing a prophecy of his own invention that shows how the world can be saved from its otherwise inevitable destruction if a hero who fulfills all the right conditions is available to battle the Midgard serpent, the dragon who encircles the world, in the final battle between the gods and their monstrous foes. The conditions this hero must fulfill are that he is descended from Odin, he is a dragon slayer, and he has died, but is also deathless. Now, this is a departure from authentic Norse mythology, as far as we know, but it does draw on some authentic aspects of that mythology. And it also seems to set up Tolkien's cosmic savior hero as a somewhat Christ-like or Christ-implying, at least, figure. 
and it recalls some of Tolkien's own earlier world-building efforts in which he seems to have put a lot of effort into reconciling pagan and Christian mythology. Then we have also in previous sessions discussed the backstory to the hero Sigurd's family and how Sigurd himself came to fulfill the first two qualifications for being the savior of the world. Uh, on the other hand, the heart of the medieval legends were organized around stories of Brynhild's betrayal by Sigurd and then the destruction of the family of Sigurd's widow, Gudrun, in conflict with the Huns. Now, this is obviously a focus that's quite a bit different from Tok Tolkien's focus on cosmic redemption, uh, and one that I think he ultimately found difficult to achieve while maintaining the traditional framework of the medieval legends, which of course he knew and loved as both a scholar and I think it's fair to say a fan. And it's precisely these cruxes in the legends, Br uh, Brynhild's betrayal and the final conflict between the Burgundians and the Huns, that we now turn to in our final session on Tolkien's published uh, published poems in the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun. And there is actually still a lot to talk about that we could talk about, but I hope I can steer us through uh, some of the major points that I think are interesting um, without overstating my welcome too badly. So, um, in our last session, we had just finished discussing Sigurd's slaying of the dragon Fafnir, um, from whom Sigurd acquires the treasure of Andvari, uh, including Andvari's ring. Now things are going to start to get complicated, and not just because the only remaining conditions that Sigurd has to fulfill to qualify as savior of the world is to die while becoming deathless. Um, actually, can we, I think I should have had us jump through a few uh, of the slides here, but Carl, can you um, cycle us through um, first to the next slide? Right, so that's just an overview of the book itself. Um, and then we have uh, a quick summary here of The Legend of Sigurd Gunroom, which I can't see because my question panel is covering it. That covers, that walks through the sections of the name sections of the poem that, um, of Tolkien's poems, uh, rewriting the legends that we've talked about, really, they, they cover the story that we've talked about in the previous sessions. And now, if we jump perhaps onto the next slide, we're going to start talking about Sigurd finally at last meets Brynhild, and really they're the only um, characters in, in this next section. So having slayed a dragon, um, Tolkien Sigurd, and indeed the Sigurd in the other Norse versions, um, uh, travels onwards and he climbs a mountain to find at the peak of the mountain a wall of flames, which his horse Grani, given to him by Odin um, just previously, um, is able to leap. He also leaps over a wall of shields. Um, and there he finds a person in armor lying as if asleep. When he cuts off this person's armor, I'm not really sure if that's considered an appropriate thing to do when you stumble across a sleeping stranger, but Sigurd is Sigurd. Anyway, when he cuts off the armor, he discovers that it's a woman. Um, now in both Volsunga Saga and Tolkien's poem, the lady here is Brynhild, and the rest of Sigurd's story is intertwined with hers quite directly. However, in the Eddic poems, the lady that Sigurd awakens at this point is identified as one Sigurd Drifa, um, a Valkyrie. Specifically, the poem telling this episode is called Sigurdrifamal, the poem of Sigurdrifa. Um, she was placed in a magic sleep by Odin as punishment for disobeying him. 
Odin also condemned her to be married, which is not really something in keeping with the traditional Valkyrie lifestyle. Um, but in response, she swore to only marry a man who knew no fear. In the Eddic poem, she recognizes, somehow, Sigurd as the slayer of the dragon Fafnir. And in Tolkien's version, the Valkyrie recognizes Sigurd as the chosen savior hero of Odin. And then she proceeds to instruct Sigurd in mystical wisdom and magical arts, which is the kind of stuff that a good legendary hero ought to know. Unfortunately, the end of Sigurd's Riformal, uh, the poem of Sigurd Rither, is missing. It's part of that, that missing section from the Codex Regius that we've discussed previously. And then when that manuscript picks up again, we come back to a much later stage of the story, um, where Brynhild has appeared and is plotted. Sigurd's death, having already been betrayed, and Sigurdrif has just gone as if she'd never been. That's actually how the author of Volsunga Saga seems to have tried to solve this problem. Sigurdrif is simply replaced by Brynhild in the saga. Or perhaps the author of Volsunga Saga never knew about Sigurdrif. Um, nevertheless, this is still perhaps one of these cases where the author of Volsunga Saga has perhaps not quite successfully glued some conflicting sources together. Um, Volsunga Saga concludes its version of this scene with Sigurd and Brynhild betrothing themselves to each other. But, though they then go their separate ways in Volsunga Saga, Sigurd travels onwards to the hall of a man name, named Hamir, who is, it seems, Brynhild's foster father, and there he in fact meets Brynhild again, though she is now described as the daughter of Boothli, father of Atli, the king of the Huns. So Brynhild has suddenly and curiously changed, no longer a supernatural Valkyrie, but a human princess. And what's even more confusing here is that Sigurd's grandfather, Volsung, was also king of the Huns in Volsunga Saga, but oh well. Um, Sigurd also acts now as if he has never seen Brynhild before, but he is smitten with her in any case. And she, though initially resistant to his suit, eventually agrees to marry him again. Um, so many scholars have wondered whether we have, again, two originally distinct similar but not quite compatible stories being fused here. Um, Tolkien, we should say, I think, did not. Tolkien thought the whole point of Brynhild was her supernatural Valkyrie origin, and that she was firmly and originally a Valkyrie that had been humanized, not a human princess who had been Valkyrized, um, or some combination of these ideas. Now, this is pretty understandable, I think. Philologists of Tolkien's day like to reconstruct backwards from their sources to a single point of origin. Um, and if you have to pick a proud Valkyrie or a jealous princess, I'm not going to fault Tolkien for going um, with the Valkyrie. But I am also forced to instead agree with those, I think, who see two stories being fused here. One of these stories perhaps involved a hero who woke a Valkyrie that then instructed him in wisdom and magic and perhaps became his bride or lover as well as his supernatural patron and protector. The other story probably involved a hero encountering a strong and proud but very human woman, um, perhaps from another ethnic group or land and the two of them becoming betrothed. Now regarding the first story, the one with the Valkyrie, um, it does seem like there was a tradition of Norse stories in which a young hero becomes involved with the Valkyrie. Um, we are accustomed to rather romanticized images of Valkyries as shining warrior maidens, and this is perhaps not so dissimilar from the way medieval Norse audiences might have come to view them. But they are Valkyries, um, mythological figures with deep roots, 
And in the pre-Christian period, they may have originally been rather terrifying figures associated with sex and death, the sorts of things that young warriors perhaps cut off from the rest of their society, out fighting or raiding, expecting imminent death to carry them off or those around them, um, sort of thing they might have been given to imagining. Um, we've already mentioned the Helgi legends, uh, originally a separate cycle of heroic legends focused on some generally similar looking heroes named all named Helgi, um, and relationships with Valkyries um, are a key motif for the heroes in these stories. Many scholars assume that the various Helgis in the Helgi legends are perhaps multiple representations of a single hero or heroic archetype whose stories derive from a common ritual pattern in which a hallowed or holy warrior, that's what Helgi means, um, mated with a divine female figure of some kind and was then ritually slain by a near relative. The heroic life is, well, heroic, but often short. Still, this kind of pattern may have encouraged the entanglement of the Sigurd legends and the Helgi legends, which we have already seen in uh, a previous section. Um, but what about the second story, the one with the proud and jealous but human um, foreign princess? What about that? Um, perhaps now we can, we can jump ahead to the next slide. Uh, Thank you, Carl. Two Brynhilds, that's the one. So um, here, in talking about these two possible Brynhilds, we may have to look to actual history as well as the kind of pure textual analysis that had been favored by philologists of Tolkien's day. Um, one of whom, rather later than Tolkien, um, Theodore Anderson, uh, in his excellent analysis of the legend of Brynhild, ultimately had to admit defeat in his quest for finding a single original version of Brynhild, as everything in his analysis indeed pointed to two distinct, though eventually connected, Brynhild traditions. There was a Norse Brynhild tradition, in which Brynhild swore to have the greatest man ever, but was eventually deceived by that very man, leading her to wreak vengeance upon him. And then there was a German or continental Brynhild who was betrothed to Siegfried, but ultimately lost him to another woman, so that she then wreaked vengeance upon him. Now, those differences may seem subtle, but they are significant in terms of Brynhild's real motivation in the different stories. According to Anderson, the Norse Brynhild is all about determination and will. Critically, her story does not actually depend, originally probably, on any prior meeting with or betrothal to Sigurd. It's simply that when her will to have the best man is thwarted, she takes revenge, not as a tragic romantic victim, but through essentially outrage that she was prevented from exercising her will. And that might help explain the curious lack of personality um, many versions of Sigurd has. As a character, he really existed only as the object of Brynhild's determination to have the best man ever. So the Norse Brynhild is basically the opposite of the problem that we so commonly see in many current stories and films, where what seems an initially a strong female role collapses into one that is just there to provide a reward for a male hero. Though that seems rather more like what happens with the German or continental version of Brynhild. She is focused not so much on exercising her personal will, but rather on desire for a particular man. And this difference allows her to become the victim of romantic betrayal. 
But by the time our surviving sources were written down, the Norse and German versions of them with their perhaps originally distinct versions of Brynhild were clearly in communication. Um, even the earliest Norse poems in there, those, um, the Brynhild there already has absorbed elements of what seems to be a tragic romantic German version of Brynhild. But how did the two Brynhilds appear here anyway? Shouldn't there be a single source for Brynhild? Well, as it happens, it has long been argued that some aspects of the characters and plot in the Volsung Nibelung cycle derive from actual history, and in this case, perhaps the history of the Frankish king Sigebert and the Spanish Visigothic princess Brunechildis, whom Sigebert married in 567 AD. Brunehildis was uh, apparently pretty impressive because Sigebert's brother, King Hilperic, um, the Franks divided kingdoms between brothers, so you often had sets of simultaneous kings who were brothers, though as we see this tends to lead to a lot of unbrotherly love. Anyway, Kilperic decided he also wanted a Visigothic princess like his brother, and he arranged to marry Galswintha, uh, sister of Brunehildis. Unfortunately, Hilperic was also involved with a woman named Fredegunda, and, well, things went badly. Um, Fredegunda convinced Kilferic to arrange the murder of Galswintha, and then Fredegund also organized the assassination of King Sigebert. Not surprisingly, hostilities between Brunehildis and the murderer of her sister and husband thereafter went on for some time. And in the course of this, Brunehildis became a powerful force in Merovingian politics, though, alas, for her so powerful that other Merovingian nobles came to resent her quite strongly. In 613, when she must have been in her 70s, she was seized and after several days of torture was torn apart by wild horses. In the Game of Thrones, you win or you die, but quite often first one and then the other. Anyway, the thought is that this story of the vital young King Sigebert married to an attractive and powerful foreign uh, exotic wife, Brunehildis, um, but who was then murdered by his half-brother, um, may have formed, all this may have formed part of the basis for the figure um, in continental legendary traditions of, of Brynhild and indeed of Siegfried. And while it would probably be difficult to convince all scholars of all the details, it does seem like some combination of originally separate historical and mythical source stories would most easily explain the self-determined supernatural warrior maiden from the Norse versions and the jealous and power-hungry, but also unjustly abused foreign princess from the German versions. Um, make sure to see if we have any questions. No, not too many yet. So anyway, um, back to the plot of the legends. Um, though they say you only get one chance to make a first impression, in Volsunga Saga, Sigurd and Brynhild rather bizarrely seem to get two chances. Um, once on Brynhild the Valkyrie's mountain, and then again in Brynhild the human warrior princess's guardian hall. Tolkien skips the latter meeting. He felt strongly that the character of Brynhild depended on her Valkyrie nature. But he does rather oddly show the couple plighting their troth twice. Um, first, while still on Brynhild's mountaintop, and then again after they ride off together for a bit, when Brynhild insists that they part, um, because Tolkien's Brynhild is also going to insist that Sigurd has to win a kingdom or she won't marry him. And that um, might recall for many of you the conditions of Aragorn's marriage to Arwen uh, in The Lord of the Rings, of course. But in any case, Sigurd here heads off on his own, in Tolkien's version, while Brynhild travels to a rather vaguely defined land of hers to sit there in a hall and await the return of a more kingly Sigurd. Um, 
this, of course, is a bit odd because it doesn't match up very well with the conception of Brynhild as definitely one of Odin's Valkyries. Valkyries don't have lands or halls. They hang out in Valhall. Um, it would have made a great deal more sense, I think, for Tolkien to just let her stay in the Ring of Fire on the mountain where Sigurd first found her. No problem. But Odin eventually shows up to Brynhild's Hall, off in whatever land it is, and orders her to get herself married within two years, and he puts another Ring of Fire around her hall. Odin needs to move things along. Um, Brynhild is not bothered too much by this, though apparently. She assumes that in any case only Sigurd could possibly be heroic enough to pass the Ring of Fire, and so that should be all right. Right? Well, now both the medieval legends and Tolkien turn to the goings-on at the stronghold of the Burgundians. Ah, just check. See, we have a question here. Was the difference between myth and history as clear-cut to early medieval people as us? That's a good question, Halstein, and I think the answer is probably no. I think when we talk about some of these historical events, and we'll talk about others later, probably for the people who were very close in time and very closely connected and for whom the events had, you know, immediate significance, you didn't just start, you know, inserting gods and heroes and dragons and things into them. Um, but I suspect as time went by and whatever had happened to people a few generations ago, you know, in great-grandmother, et cetera, as time, that turned into the dim and distant past. Um, and it wasn't, as important, you know, the historical details of what happened so much. Um, there's a lot we could say about the differences in perception between people post-enlightenment in the modern period and the perceptions of people in the medieval period about what history was for and what it meant, um, but I think not. I, I imagine if you were, you know, somebody who was there in, in Brunehildis and Sigebert's time, um, you know, you probably didn't, you know, just make, make a, you know, add, mix in a whole bunch of myth to it to make a better story right away. But as you got further away, a few generations later on, and there were other similar stories, and you could start, you, things would probably start to mix together. And I'll hit um, Tony's question here. Are the stories of mortal human wars, marrying or having affairs with Valkyries, at all related to Celtic and Arthurian stories of men falling in love with fairies, elves? And is this part of the inspiration for Baron Luthen's story, among others? That's a good question. Um, I think probably at some some relatively deep level there is a relationship. Um, you know, once you have a conception of otherworldly beings, um, perhaps not so much gods, but in in some ways other supernatural beings that you know interact with the mortal world, um, you're probably going to have people um, having stories about um, getting involved with them, marrying them, having children with them, et cetera, et cetera, for one reason or another. Um, there are connections between. Um, the creatures we describe as Valkyries in Norse myth and other things that happen in Celtic myth. There's a lot of interesting work on that. Is it part of the inspiration for Barry and Luthien? Yeah, I think, you know, we have lots of kinds of stories where people get involved with elves and fairies um, or other kinds of supernatural beings. I think the Valkyries as kind of, you know, demonic battle demons of sex and death as they appear to have been in a, in a much earlier age probably are perhaps a little bit separate, but, you know, fairies and elves are also kind of dangerous and associated with the world dead. So that's an interesting, uh, an interesting point. And I, I, I think, uh, in, uh, at least on some levels, uh, uh, a good one. Um, so um, we're going to turn now to um, we, the medieval legends, um, us, Tolkien, all turn now to the goings on at the stronghold of the Burgundians. Uh, 
and there's a lot of things we could talk about here. There's an interesting prophetic dream and things like that from Gudrun. And that seems to be actually a very old element in the story, but I want to move on and, and focus on other things. And one of those is the name Nibelung, uh, or German Nibelungen and Norse Niflungar, um, as there is some debate over whether this name itself has a more historical or mythological origin. The name is often associated with the Burgundians, though in the actual Nibelungen lead, it seems initially to have been used to identify the supernatural guardians of the treasure that Siegfried acquires, though not from a dragon, before he arrives to Burgundia. And then only later, without much explanation, it changes and is applied to the Burgundians themselves. Now on one hand, the name Nibelung does appear to have been used as a historical Burgundian personal or clan name, and it seems to appear in several place names from the area of Burgundian settlement. And it also later appears as a Frankish personal name after the Merovingian Franks eventually conquered and absorbed the Burgundian kingdom. Now on the other hand, the first element of the name Nibel seems to derive from a word referring to clouds and darkness, um, with cognates in modern German and, and uh, medieval Scandinavian. And this, this suggests a mythical underworld type of association, such as with beings like dwarves who are associated with the treasure in both Norse and German sources for the legends. Do we have a mythological tale of treasure and treasure guardians that became historicized? Or do we have a historical clan whose name became later associated with mythical beings? As Christopher Tolkien explains in one of the appendices to the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, his father seems to have subscribed more to the mythological theory that the Nibelungs were originally the mythological owners of some great treasure. Um, and to be fair, the treasure of the legends has a mythological origin in both the Norse and German versions, but that eventually this treasure became associated with the Burgundians, perhaps as a motivation for the Huns to attack them. And we'll talk more about that shortly. But then against this, we have the use of the name Nibelung by apparently perfectly real and historical Burgundians for themselves uh, or for some of their groups. Did some historical Burgundian family adopt this name of mythological treasure guardians as their own? Perhaps. Um, but, but there is also evidence for a whole slew of other Burgundian clan names that are associated with weather or light and darkness, including ones such as the Wolkingos, the cloud people, the Dagalingos, the day people, the Leuchtingos, the light people, and the Saulingos, the soul, soul or sun people. Um, again, I think that with the name and concept of the Nibelungs, it's not unlikely that we really have a merging of originally distinct mythological and then also historical elements into a grand legendary fusion. But in any case, Sigurd comes to the land of the Burgundians, um, also the Nibelungen or the Niflungar as they are in the Norse sources. Um, and uh, Carl, could you pop us the next slide, please? Thank you, there we go. Um, the Burgundians and the Bizarre Love Polygon. That's what it's all about now. So when he gets there, Sigurd and the Burgundians get along quite famously. Sigurd swears blood brotherhood with the Burgundian prince Gunnar and the Burgundians hail Sigurd as a king. Now that's a condition that Brynhild set for their marriage, though it seems Sigurd will need to do a little more to make that honor really count. Although Volsunga Saga describes Sigurd as taking revenge for the killing of his father Sigmund back before tackling Dragon, in Tolkien's version he gets down to that only now. 
Supported by his new Burgundian friends, Sigurd sets off and reconquered Sigmund's old kingdom, his father's old kingdom. And he succeeds in the reconquest, but finds the old hall of his family in ruins, the tree from which his father drew Odin's magic sword dead. Odin, however, appears to Sigurd and informs him that, congratulations, he has now earned the title of king. King of what, it's not clear, but what can I say except you're welcome. And Odin goes on to say that this is not where Sigurd needs to be. A bride awaits him elsewhere. And the observant will notice that Odin is not very specific about who that bride is. Um, we might get a bit of a sense that Odin is in fact steering Sigurd towards fulfillment of the final conditions of the prophecy of the Sirius, which is to say Sigurd has to die. What can I say except we're dead soon? But I digress. Um, so back to Burgundy Sigurd goes. Here the queen of the Burgundians, Grimhild, decides that Sigurd, perhaps not least his treasure, is quite a good catch for the Burgundians, but also for her daughter, the Princess Gudrun. Um, the astute at this point will notice that the Norse name Grimhild is quite similar to the old High German name Krimhild, which is used for the character in the Nibelungenlied, who plays much the same role as does Gudrun in the Norse legends. But anyway, the problem with Grimhild's matchmaking plan is that Sigurd has already betrothed himself twice, actually, in Tolkien's version to Brynhild. Conveniently, however, Grimhild is a sorceress. She concocts a potion that Sigurd drinks and thereby forgets all about Brynhild. Now, this is a wonderful fairy tale type motif, but it's also one that's only necessary in a version of the legend in which Sigurd has already met Brynhild before getting involved with Gudrun. The Nibelungenly doesn't show Siegfried meeting Prynhild before he meets Kriemhild, but it does there rather look like the author of the Nibelungenly tried very hard to eliminate evidence from his sources showing that he had. And it's widely assumed that a prior meeting, indeed betrothal between Siegfried and Prynhild, is a typical German plot element that moved into the Norse versions where it wasn't necessary for Sigurd to meet Brynhild earlier because that's not the aspect of betrayal in the Norse versions. But thus, Volsunga Saga and Tolkien, too, needed something like a potion of forgetfulness to keep Sigurd, supposed to be the shining legendary hero, from seeming like a complete bastard in terms of his relationship to Brynhild. So with all memory of Brynhild blasted out of his head, Sigurd is then introduced to Gudrun, the Burgundian princess, and of course he is smitten. Sigurd just basically falls for every woman he meets, and then they all seem to fall for him, too. This is going to lead to problems. Especially since Queen Grimhild reckons that her son Gunnar should now be the one to win Brynhild. Um, Gunnar seems fine with this, why not? And accompanied by the amnesia-stricken Sigurd, travels to Brynhild's hall, wherever it is. But Gunnar can't pass the walls of flame that Odin has set up. He's pretty heroic, but not heroic enough. Of course, Sigurd would be heroic enough. So Gunnar and Sigurd magically exchange appearances. And we may now be reminded of Signy, Sigurd's aunt in the prequel saga, who exchanged appearances with a sorceress so as to deceive her brother into incestuously conceiving Sinfjotli. Anyway, Sigurd, appearing as Gunnar, successfully passes the Wall of Fire surrounding Brynhild. And she is a bit nonplussed. Um, she was rather expecting Sigurd to show up. But she is also bound to marry whoever passes the Wall of Flame. They're, that was supposed to be the same person. What's a girl to do? Well, a bit reluctantly, which is always a bad sign in all 
old Norse literature, she decides to accept marriage to Gunnar. Oh. Did we lose sound there for a moment? Did anybody else lose sight? Caden uh, Kumar is saying the sound is gone, but then it came back quite quickly, hopefully. Didn't lose too much, hopefully. Um, just checking our our sources. Okay, good. Other people can hear me. So um, Sparrow asks, uh, if one of the mainstay themes of Norse heroics is conflicting oaths, what about the proportion of time um, one of the two oaths is marriage or romance related? Well, um, I think, you know, to some extent we can subsume the idea of marriage kinship as a, as a kind of oath-bound kinship. Um, and sound went off momentarily. Okay, it's back. If there were any questions about what I might have said, then uh, we'll, we'll pick it up. But, because um, I don't know where it went off. Um, so I think, you know, the, the real issue in, in, in a lot of Norse literature is, you know, there are people who are your blood genetic relations, blood relations perhaps as they would have called them, um, people who are, you have a, a direct relationship, direct family relationship with, and then there are people who you have a sort of oath-bound, sworn relationship with, and that could be kin by marriage, that could be blood brothers, that could be other people to whom you've sworn certain things, um, or you've sworn particular oaths to do something or something like that. It's a conflict between given words, given promises, and the the demands of, of family, of blood family. Um, so I think that's that's how that that works, and that's that's a you know a really strong theme running through early um, Germanic religious uh, literature. But of course, by the time we get to the medieval period, and especially in the more courtly atmosphere of southern Germany, um, you know the whole issue is to some extent a little bit turned around. Um, romantic relationships become very important. Um, marriage relationships and marriage alliances become very um, much more important, probably than even. Bloodkin, which is something that we'll end up seeing in the in the German version of the um, the fall of the Burgundians. But um, again, I digress. Um, so in any case, Sigurd, disguised as Gunnar, has showed up in in Brynhild's hall, passing the flames. Um, she's bound to marry him, which she agrees to do. And Sigurd sleeps beside her there in the hall then, but places the sword Gram between them. And in this way, he, in this version, manages to maintain faith with both Gunnar and Gudrun, no impropriety on Sigurd. And the German version of the legend here is actually quite a bit more horrible in that it seems Siegfried basically rapes Brynhild because Gunther uh, is unable to, and this destroys the German Brynhild's martial powers. Um, but back to the Norse version, Brynhild is actually perhaps a bit disappointed by her fiancé's curious behavior with this sword separating them. Hello, I'm an amazing Valkyrie who has just consented to marry you what's with the freaky celibacy thing? That's essentially what she asked. And Sigurd, decide, disguised as Gunnar, comes up with a kind of lame excuse that it was prophesied that he has to spend his wedding night like this or die. I mean, seriously? But what's a girl going to do? Still, the real problems are only just starting. In Volsunga Saga, Sigurd had already given Anvari's ring to Brynhild as a betrothal gift back before, but now he takes it and gives her a different ring. In the Nibelungenlied and Thiedrich Saga, the German traditions essentially, Siegfried or Sigurd um, also takes a ring from Brynhild, though the concept of Anvari and his treasure and ring don't exist in the German versions. In Tolkien's version, as in the Poetic Edda, Sigurd actually takes a ring from Brynhild's finger and replaces it, giving her um, Anvari's ring. And we 
you don't know for sure what might have happened in Norse Eddie poems because all this part of the story takes place in the missing script. How Sigurd is he messing around with them? And then when he and Gunnar eventually change back to their proper shapes, why does Sigurd not actually mention the ring business to Gunnar so as to complete the deception? The surviving versions of the legends do not really address these questions, and neither does Tolkien. It's just one of those things that a protagonist does while you, the audience, shout, oh my god, no, what are you doing? Oh my god, oh my god, this is bad. It's just one of those things. And so, of course, it's utterly crucial to how it all plays out from here. Um, we should probably at this uh, point mention briefly um, that in Volsunga Saga, before going to Burgundy to properly marry Gunnar, um, Brynhild leaves the daughter she had with Sigurd named Auslaug um, with her foster father. Wait, what? When was this daughter conceived? Not while Sigurd was impersonating Gunnar and pointedly not having sex with Brynhild. Uh, back when he awoke her on the mountaintop, or when he went to her foster father's hall? The saga doesn't say, and in fact it's pretty obvious that Auslog is a rather clumsy addition to the story. She's re really only there because in another saga she is supposed to marry the Viking Age legendary hero Ragnar Lothbrok, and the medieval Norwegian kings then claim descent from Sigurd through Ragnar. But there is no child of Sigurd and Brynhild in any other version, and Tolkien, who objected to the insertion of Auslag in Volsunga Saga as grievous damage to the story, um, of course left her out. So Brynhild, preferably without any illogical daughters, comes to the Burgundian court and properly marries Gunnar. Then, of course, the potion of forgetfulness that Sigurd drank wears off, wears off, and he remembers that he was supposed to have married Brynhild himself. Awkward. Meanwhile, Brynhild and Gudrun go to wash their hair in the River Rhine, and there they quarrel over who has to stand downstream from the rinsings of the other, a question that, as it turns out, um, is dependent on the relative merits of their respective husbands. The Nibelungenlied seems to have balked at such a scene of bathing queens. Instead, it rather primly has the two confront each other at a church door but it's still about who has the better spouse. And this confrontation, the quarrel of the queens, is central to all the medieval versions of the legend. And they all disagree about just what happened and actually none necessarily makes a great deal of sense as they stand. All the medieval sources do agree that Gudrun tells Brynhild that the man who won her was not Gunnar, but Sigurd. All agree that this accusation is proved by the display of a ring, but they cannot agree on what ring it was or who had possession of it. Volsunga Saga says that Sigurd had first given to and then taken from Brynhild Andvari's ring, but that he had then inexplicably given it to Gudrun, who now displays it to Brynhild. Oops. Um, the Nibelungenlied and Thiedrich Saga agree that Siegfried, or Sigurd, gave a ring that he had taken also from Prynhild to Kriemhild, who then displays it to Prynhild as proof, and also oops. Tolkien, though, follows the poetic Edda, saying that Gudrun pointed out that Brynhild was wearing Anvari's ring, and she could have only received it from Sigurd, not Gunnar. But how did Gudrun even know what Anvari's ring was? Did Sigurd tell her that he'd wooed Brynhild magically disguised as Gunnar and given her Anvari's ring from the treasure he had won? But he didn't tell Gunnar this? Weird, but anyway, somehow, oops. 
And again, we don't know what the missing Eddie poems might have said because they're missing. But they do pick up again soon afterward, and all the virgins, uh, versions of the legend, everything now starts going from bad to worse. So, um, in all versions also, Brynhild is now pissed off. Um, Sigurd has in one way or another, depending on how it played out, betrayed her, and so clearly must die. Um, in Tolkien's version, Brynhild insists to Gunnar that Sigurd did actually have sex with her while impersonating, which is not true. She's lying in at least the Norse version and the Tolkien's version also. Um, in the German traditions, it seems like Siegfried had actually raped Brynhild while disguised as Gunther. Um, the Nibelungenlied tries to dance around this aspect of its inherited tradition a bit unconvincingly, but Kriemhild's point in the quarrel was basically, in the German versions, is basically that Gunther wasn't man enough to rape Brynhild, but her husband Siegfried was. Um, that's deeply disturbing, really. Still, in Volsunga Saga and Tolkien's versions, Sigurd is a bit thick and has been duped by Grimhild with the potion of forgetfulness, but he hasn't done anything nearly so awful as his German counterparts. But Gunnar doesn't know that. Still, there's a catch. Gunnar can't kill Sigurd because he has previously sworn blood brotherhood with him. Conveniently, however, um, Gunnar's brother, or perhaps half-brother, Guttormer, um, is not Sigurd's sworn blood brother, and so he is essentially coerced into killing Sigurd instead, which he manages eventually, though the dying Sigurd also slays him. And that's the end of our hero Sigurd, and his prophecy is nearly fulfilled. Gudrun wails in lament of her slain husband, while Brynhild laughs to have achieved her revenge. But like Signy, actually, Brynhild does not outlive her revenge by much. She does first tell Gunnar, oh, hey, I actually made up that whole thing about me and Sigurd having sex. He was innocent. But then she kills herself, having demanded that she be burned on the same pyre as Sigurd, with his sword Gram between them in death, as was actually the case in this version in life. Ultimately, in Tolkien's version, and really only in Tolkien's version, everything has been masterminded rather Byzantinely by Odin for the explicit purpose of ensuring that he has engineered the existence of a savior hero who meets all the conditions set in the prophecy, again, only in Tolkien's version, of the Cirrus. You might all think that that could have been done in a less complicated fashion, but even the very wise cannot see all ends, especially when those ends are Odin's. So, Sigurd and Brynhild arrive in Valhall, where he is deathless despite having tasted death, and the prophecy is now complete. When the last battle someday comes, it will be Brynhild who buckles on Sigurd's sword, and he will sally forth to defeat the Midgard Serpent and save the world, in Tolkien's version. Though this actually, I think, seems a bit of a letdown for Brynhild. I think Eowyn in The Lord of the Rings gets a better bargain. Um, she gets to slay the Witch King and his somewhat serpent-like mount herself uh, during a battle with apocalyptic overtones, if not one that was actually the end of the world. Eowyn doesn't get to marry the hero with the reforged sword, but frankly, I don't know. I think Faramir may actually be the better choice than Aragorn. I mean, Aragorn's all right, um, but he's all a bit earnest and grim, really. In any case, better to be Eowyn than Brynhild. So, now in terms of Tolkien's efforts to put a cosmic stamp on the legends, 
to make Sigurd the hero who will prevent the end of the world, there's nothing more to be done. But of course, the medieval legends didn't have this cosmic outlook, and they carry right on with more tales of conflicting blood and marriage-based loyalties. Um, and while Wagner, the dilettante of Germanic legend, as Tolkien perhaps saw him, had been perfectly happened to let all that go, Tolkien, the good philologist, was not. And so Tolkien's second and rather shorter poem, which is published in The Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, um, pursues the plot of the medieval legends right on, past the point at which Tolkien's telling has already achieved a guarantee of cosmic redemption, um, towards the point where the continuing human drama eventually concludes. So the world, as everyone will now be glad to know, will be saved from final destruction someday. But meanwhile, basically everyone still left in the story is going to die. In the surviving Norse versions of the legends, Sigurd and Brynhild are both explicitly dead at this point. In the Nibelungenlied, Siegfried is definitely dead, and Brynhild just kind of mostly vanishes without explanation. But Sigurd's widow Gudrun, or Kriemhild in her German version, is still around, as are many family members of hers and their followers, and we have to get rid of them. So, we have already mentioned how the part of the character of Brynhild seems to perhaps go back to some aspects of real events involving a 6th century Spanish Visigothic princess, Brunichildis, married to a Merovingian king, Sigebert, who is murdered at the instigation of his half-brother's mistress. And much of the final parts of the Volsung Nibelung legends also seem to have some historical inspirations, though for these we have to go back even further to the the destruction of a 5th century Burgundian kingdom by the Huns. Historically, from the 4th century AD, a large conglomerate group um, known as the Huns, um, generally comprising probably many different kinds of peoples and ethnic groups and languages and things, have been moving out of Central Asia west into Europe and pushing many other groups in front of them. And amongst these were the Burgundians, one of many Germanic-speaking groups banging around the edges of the later Roman Empire, basically trying to keep a step ahead of the Huns. In 410 AD, we hear of the Burgundians and their leader, Guntiarios, supporting the Romano-Gaulish usurper um, Jovinus for Roman emperor. Um, Jovinus was defeated in 413, but his Burgundian allies were apparently granted the right to settle in what was then southern Gaul along the Rhine in the area of the later city of Worms. Um, and apparently the Burgundian king Guntiarios then ruled successfully for a long while. In 435, however, we're told that the Burgundians, who had, had at some intervening point been subjugated by the Huns, took advantage of the, their Hunnish overlord's southern death to rebel against his followers and gain uh, at least temporary independence. And then perhaps emboldened by this success, and still as it happens, led by Gundaharius, um, the Burgundians then tried moving westward, but in this they were repulsed by the Romans. And then utter defeat followed this setback swiftly, as in 437, Gundaharius and his people were annihilated, apparently, in a Hunnish attack, though it was not clear whether this was instigated through the Huns' own volition or whether it was encouraged by the Romans. Still, um, despite this awesome defeat, the Burgundians as such did not completely cease to exist. Um, around 433, some survivors were resettling in Savoy, near Lake Geneva, um, though by 451, we hear of them again under Hunnish control. Then, somewhere around 500, a law code of the Burgundians was produced in Latin, and this records in semi-Latinized forms the names of several earlier Burgundian kings, whose names correspond sometimes very exactly um, 
two names that we know from the later Volsung Nibelung legends. Um, Carl, perhaps you can, again, throw forward the slide to our next slide, which I think summarizes just quickly some of those correspondences. So there on the, um, the left side is the, are the Burgundian Latin forms from the law code from somewhere around 500. And then old high German names, which we mostly know from the Nibelungenlied, some uh, old English names that we know from um, sources there, I think mostly Widsith, and then the Old Norse names from the various Old Norse uh, sources. And some of those are, are very uh, exact phonological correspondences. Um, Gotomer, maybe not so much, but in any case, there you go. So, like it says there, um, we have uh, Gibica and uh, Gifica and Guki, et cetera, et cetera. And the medieval legends that we um, that we have discussed the conflict between the Burgundians and the King of the Huns, whose names haven't put them there on the chart, but Atli in Norse and Etzel in the Nibelungenlied. These derive from the name, which is perhaps originally actually a Gothic nickname, Attila, um, which of course belonged to the most famous of the historical Hunnish leaders. Um, though in actual history, although Attila was, as far um, as far as we know, alive and indeed a joint leader of the Huns, when the Burgundians of Gundaharias were being destroyed. He was not actually involved with that conflict. We think he was apparently somewhere else, occupied on the middle Danube, negotiating with the Romans and probably destroying other things or other people. But still, as you can imagine, if you're going to have a story about people being destroyed by the Huns, once the actual perhaps events are fading into the dimness of semi-remembered history, you might as well end up involving the most famous of all the Huns, because even if it's inaccurate, who cares? It makes a good story. And as for the historical Burgundians, they continued to linger on, though they were eventually also conquered and absorbed by the Merovingian Franks in 534. And it seems then like Burgundian names, perhaps already familiar from legends of some kind, then gained a certain popularity amongst the Franks, perhaps through intermarriage with old Burgundian noble families. And then in 567, the Visigothic princess Brunichildis marries the Merovingian Frankish king Sigebert, as we've already discussed, and a new layer of sixth century family feud narrative may have then started to get mixed up, or afterwards probably getting mixed up with pre-existing tales about the destruction of Gundaharius' fifth century Burgundians by the Huns. You know, you want to get it all together in one place, really, these stories. Anyway, in the Norse versions of the Volsung Nibelung legends, with Sigurd now out of the way, Atli, king of the Huns, wants Sigurd's treasure, which is now in the keeping of Gudrun's remaining brothers, Gunnar and Hogni. Uh, Hogni is Gunnar's brother in the Norse versions and in Tolkien's, but he's a vassal of Gunther's in the German versions. And there's a lot of discussion about what he is and where he comes from, but we're not going to go there today. Um, anyway, Atli threatens war with the Burgundians to gain the treasure unless he can marry Gudrun. And so the Burgundians are initially inclined to seek peace in our time by marrying off the newly available Gudrun. To safeguard the treasure, though, Gunnar and Hogni hide it so that only the two of them know its location. Then in Volsunga Saga, Gudrun is actually given another potion of forgetfulness. Perhaps there was some left over from dosing Sigurd so that she forgets her former husband and will agree to marry Atli. Um, Tolkien objected to the return of the forgetfulness potion. So in his vision, the wicked Grimhild simply persuades Gudrun to agree to the marriage, which she does reluctantly. And by now, we all know that when a bride in Norse literature is less than thrilled by the match, you can bet that blood and death will ensue. 
Uh, Tony has a question. Is the use of names of the same first letter an actual naming convention among Germanic peoples, or is this a convention of the storytellers? Um, actually, it does seem to have been a, a convention, um, uh, naming convention among many Germanic peoples. I'm not sure if it was followed as religiously in all times and spaces, but you do see that pattern in actual history, and you do see it um, in stories as well. So a lot of the people in Sigurd's family, um, the legendary Sigurd, they all have names that start with Sig or Sin or S at least. Um, in Helgi's family, there's a, a number of people whose names begin with H, uh, although they get mixed up in our medieval legends. Um, in the historical Burgundian kings, a lot of them begin with G. So yes, and one of the things that people get suspicious about is when you see people with the wrong name, like Hogni, for example, popping up in the family of uh, with that's usually characterized by other letters so you know if Hogni was really properly Gunnar's brother oughtn't he have a name that starts with G perhaps so um, but these things get get mixed around sometimes but yes basically it, it is an actual convention um, at least a lot of the time or some of the time a significant amount of the time um, but in any case Looking at what we've got here, we're going into this conflict with the Burgundians and the Huns. You might well suspect that we have again, as you know, um, seems to have been the case. Perhaps these two separate stories: one about Brunhild's bizarre love polygon with Sigurd and Gudrun, and another about the fall of the Burgundians at the hand of the Huns, and that these have somehow been welded together by sharing the figure of Gudrun, or in the German version, Kriemhild, and perhaps the shared um, motif of the treasure. And this seems likely. We can keep in mind that the bizarre love polygon story may have derived some of its elements from the tales of historical 6th century princess Brunichildis, while the fall of the Burgundian story may have derived some of its elements from tales of the historical feat of the Burgundians by the Huns in the previous 5th century. And the treasure may have been involved in both stories, or some kind of treasure may have been involved, perhaps also playing a, a role in welding them together. Um, and actually, the presence of treasure as a plot element in all these probably originally separate stories about Anvari's gold and the slaying of a dragon and the bizarre love polygon with Valkyries and princesses and the fall of the Burgundians. This role, this appearance of treasure may have been in some way instrumental in bringing all of these tales together, which they originally probably weren't in preliterate times. And again, as with the character of Brynhild and some other things, we can see two quite distinct approaches taken with the fall of the Burgundians in the Norse versus the German traditions. In the German version, Kriemhild wants to take revenge on her own brothers for their part in the murder of her husband Siegfried. And she calculates that marriage to Etzel, the German version of Atli or Attila, will help her achieve this. And it does, though everyone is really appalled by the slaughter she instigates and she is actually cut down at the end of the Nibelungenlied by one of Etzel's own men. In the Norse version, however, which is the version that Tolkien follows, Gudrun is instead trying to save her brothers, even though they killed her husband, blood being thicker than water or marriage oaths. So in the Norse versions, Atli, having married Gudrun, then invites her brothers to visit him, baiting the trap with offers of treasure and land. But of course, it's a trap. He really plans to, it's a trap. Um, he really plans to treacherously kill them and seize the treasure. Um, Gudrun tries to warn her brothers of Atli's treacherous intentions, much as Signy tried to warn her father Volsung about the treacherous intentions of her husband Sigger in the first part, the prequel saga. But her messages, Gudrun's messages, are detected and erased or altered. Nevertheless, the brothers think that there's something suspicious going on. At the very least, they already have treasure and land, 
what good is Atle's offer of more? But unfortunately for them, they are heroes. Um, and thus, like Volsunger before them, they can't afford to let anyone think they are afraid. So despite their suspicions, they set out to visit Atle after all. And upon their arrival, they are, you guessed it, attacked. And so the final battle begins. Gudrun is torn between her loyalty to Sigurd, for whose death her brothers should arguably die themselves, just as Kriemhild attempts in the Nibelungenlied, but also her, her loyalty to her brothers as bloodkin, and also her loyalty to Atli as her husband. Blood ties, of course, went out, though, in proper Norse fashion, and Gudrun resolves to aid her brothers. Here, though, Tolkien introduces a fairly remarkable innovation of his own, one of a couple here in this um, final fall of the Burgundian section. In the Nibelungenlied, in, um, joining the battle to fight against, in that version's case, Kriemhild's brothers, are men led by Dietrich, a common heroic character in medieval German legend, um, based on the historical 6th century Gothic king, Theodoric the Great. Now, Tolkien is not going to have Goths attacking Burgundians in his epic, but he does have his Gudrun rouse the allegiance of certain Gothic warriors who are, in Tolkien's version, as would have been perhaps the case historically, part of Atli's or Attila's confederations of tribes. Um, Gudrun calls these Goths to aid the Burgundians by reminding them of their own old wars in past times against the Huns before they became Hunnic vassals. And this allows Tolkien to make some oblique references to uh, an Old Norse poem that is not part of the Volsung Niebling cycle, um, but known as the Battle of the Goths and the Huns, parts of which do seem to preserve very, very old details indeed, relating to Gothic Hunnic conflicts that seem to have actually historically predated Attila and Gundaharius, the Burgundian both. And so in Tolkien's version, the entrance of the Goths on the Burgundian side turns the tide of the battle here, and Gudrun's brothers manage to capture Atli. And they are on the point of killing him, but Gudrun insists that they should not also kill her second husband, as they did her first, treacherous though Atli may be, and as Sigurd, in fact, was not. So Atli, set free, goes to find reinforcements, while the Burgundians and the Goths retreat to a hall to make a classic doomed hall defense of the kind familiar elsewhere in Old English and Old Norse literature. And indeed, Tolkien um, pretty much invents this scene and makes fairly direct use of some ideas drawn from the Old English Finsburg fragment and its accompanying episode that is recounted in Beowulf, as he was pretty, pretty familiar with that material well. Um, and so, as is typical in these kinds of hall defense scenarios, the attackers eventually set fire to the hall, even though it's actually the Huns' own hall in this case, and this forces the defenders out, allowing now the capture of Gunnar and Hogni. Hogni is thrown in prison, while Atli questions um, Gunnar about the treasure. Atli has not at all forgotten, that's why he invited the brothers there in the first place, and only Gunnar and Hogni know where the treasure is hidden. Gunnar, though, hints that um, to Atli that he might agree to surrender his share, but he can't do so without revealing the whereabouts of Hogni's share as well. On the other hand, if Hogni were dead, if Gunnar held Hogni's heart in his hand, well, then Gunnar would be the heir of all the treasure, and maybe a deal could be reached. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Well, Atli is pleased at the thought of having to negotiate only with Gunnar but he does want to avoid irritating Gudrun uh, as much as necessary by if, you know, by which killing Hogni would certainly do. 
So in an attempt to deceive Gunnar, Atli orders a servant, one Hjali, to be killed and hands Hjali's heart over to Gunnar, claiming it is Hargnes. But Gunnar is not fooled. Hjali's heart is still quaking with fear, and Hogni's heart would never do so. So Atli gives in. Hogni is killed, for real, and his heart delivered to Gunnar. It does not quake. Gunnar knows that it's Hogni's heart. But of course, Atli has played directly into Gunnar's hands. Gunnar reckons there is no way that he or Hogni genuinely escape with their lives. But there is always the risk that Hogni might have separately given up the secret of the treasure, which is why Gunnar engineered Hogni's death. He forced Atli to eliminate one of the only two sources of information about the treasure. Now only Gunnar knows the secret, and nothing will make him give it up. Uh, Carl, could you jump us to the next slide, please? Time for another slide. Oops, that's the fall of the Regonians with the main characters, so they all are. Perhaps I'll jump again to uh, a slide after that. Was that the previous slide? There we go, that's the one I want. Gunnar harps in the snake pit. Thank you. Um, so enraged, Atli hurls Gunnar into, as the slide suggests, a pit of poisonous snakes. Um, Gudrun throws a harp down to him, and Gunnar's harping um, in Volsunga Saga and in Tolkien's version lulls most of the snakes to sleep, all except the biggest, which um, bites him, and he dies. Um, there is actually an Eric poem that claims this snake was the magically transformed mother of Atli, which is um, intriguingly weird, but Tolkien doesn't go there. But this scene with Gunnar in the snake pit was apparently a very famous and well-known scene, and it appears in a number of medieval Scandinavian carvings, um, including those three on the slide, pretty certainly, and also some some others. It's it's actually pretty well spread around in medieval Scandinavian art as these things go. Um, snake pits and similar things as instruments of torture and or execution are known in other Norse literature and contexts, and some 12th to 13th century accounts of the Viking Age hero Ragnar Lothbrok, whom Volsunga Saga relates to Sigurd, also claim Ragnar died in a snake pit. And as late actually as the 18th century, we're pretty much into almost modern times, an Icelandic poet actually composed an original new poem about Gunnar in the snake pit. Um, but anyway, with Gunnar's famous snaky death, the location of the treasure is now concealed forever. Gudruna, though, is of course not happy that her brothers have been killed. It's the last straw for her, and she pretty much totally loses it now. While Atli celebrates a victory feast over the Burgundians, Gudrun kills the sons that she has apparently had with Atli and has them cooked as food and served to their father at the feast. We may be reminded of Signy um, killing her sons by Sigir as part of her quest for vengeance against him. Gudrun then reveals what she has done to Atli, who faints in horror, as you might, and is put by his servants to bed. Gudrun, however, barges into his chambers and fatally stabs him. Um, here actually is another place where scholars suspect that history has evolved into legend. As Christopher Tolkien notes in his commentary, the Roman historian Jordanus um, records that the historical Attila married a woman with the Germanic sounding name of Ildico. Perhaps that's a, a nickname for somebody who is named Hild or whose name ended with Hild, like for example, Kriemhild. Um, but anyway, Attila married this girl with a Germanic sounding name, Ildiko, got very drunk at his wedding feast, and then died in his bedchamber from a nosebleed which choked him. It's almost a bit spinal tap sounding. 
Um, however, only 80 years later, after Attila's death, another Byzantine historian claimed that it Attila had died when a woman stabbed him. And as the scholar Ursula Dronka has suggested, it kind of sounds like the probably true account of probably true, as, as far as we know, about the nosebleed, because um, you can't really make that up, um, was rejected as fake news. Um, the mighty Attila drowned by a nosebleed? No way! I bet that Germanic girl killed him. Anyway, in Tolkien's version, with Atli now dead, Gudrun actually killing him, and Gudrun's children by him dead, and Gudrun's brothers dead, and everyone dead, really. Um, Gudrun sets Atli's hall afire, presumably a different one than the one in which her brothers had earlier been burned out of. The duplication of Atli's halls here is a bit odd. Um, but anyway, he, she sets it afire. Um, and Tolkien's final Volsungniglum poem concludes with Gudrun wandering through the forest, lamenting her fate, which is pretty lamentable, uh, and then drowning herself in a river. It's not uncommon for lots of male characters to die violently in Norse legend, as has happened here. But as we've noted, the women usually do not participate directly in physical combat. And just about the only way for them to die untimely is suicide, which is the way that Signy and Brynhild and Gudrun all exit um, most Norse versions of the story, um, including Tolkien's. And there are some other Norse Eddic poems that actually string uh, Gudrun's character along a bit further. She throws herself into the ocean rather than a river. She washes up somewhere uh, and she then gets married to another foreign king, in this case one called Jormenrecker. Um, however, here is another place where history collides rather unhistorically with legend because as Tolkien knew very well, the Norse Jormenrecker character is based on a historical Gothic king named Ermanric. Ermanric, um, who had probably lived at least half a century before the Huns had destroyed the historical Burgundian kingdom of Gundaharius, and Tolkien was just not going to mix up any more history out of order like this. So his legend ends with the deaths of Gudrun and her brothers, which is largely where the Nibelungen lead ends too, and probably a lot of the earlier Norse versions. So where does that leave us? Well, pretty much at the end. Um, and you may have noticed that though Tolkien does his best by ramping up a cataclysmic battle complete with a hall defense inspired by sources completely separate from the medieval Volsung Nibelung legends, he does his best to end the poems with a bang. They actually kind of end with something of a whimper as Gudrun laments and drowns herself. And you will have noticed that there is really nothing of cosmic significance in Tolkien's second Volsung poem focused on Gudrun and the fall of their Burgundians. Um, or in actually the original medieval versions. Um, having pinned his focus on Sigurd as the world savior, the whole theme of Odin needing to save the world by engineering the existence of that savior who fulfills the prophecy of the seers um, has already concluded long ago with Sigurd's death and entry into Valhall there to await the last battle between gods and monsters. And Odin himself retires from the story at that point. Nor does anything else of real mythological or cosmic significance take place afterward. The story of Gudrun, her brothers, her new husband, and all of their deaths is an entirely human story of conflicting loyalties and obligations. And this is perhaps why it's rather hard to turn the complete Balsam Nibelung legends into a tale of cosmic salvation. If, like Tolkien, you have a good philologist's respect for the integrity of your medieval sources. 
On the other hand, if you are Richard Wagner and the medieval sources are really just your springboard, well, you can feel free to cut and paste and trim to suit your purposes. For example, Wagner had no need for the quarrel of the queens. Um, his story wasn't really about Brynhild's betrayal, and so it's gone from the operas. Now, he certainly had no need for the whole fall of the Burgundians thing. It's just gone. But Tolkien, I think, wasn't willing to do that. Um, to be sure, as we have said, Tolkien knew very well that the medieval versions of the story that he uses for his sources are probably very far from many earlier versions of those stories that must have once existed. But Tolkien wasn't trying to write what he thought were the original earliest versions of the legends. And I think, and remember, these poems of his date from a period when he was still toying with trying to reconcile aspects of Christian and pagan mythology. I think Tolkien both liked the medieval Norse versions of the Volsung Nibelung legends, which had been familiar to him since he had been a child, um, and remembering that Tolkien thought that glimpses of Christian truth, as he saw it, could shine through even in pagan myth, that was the debate he had with C.S. Lewis, he may have thought such glimpses actually perhaps shined through better and more clearly in these kind of later, more evolved versions of the legends as represented in the Eddic poems and even in Volsunga Saga. Was he then imagining himself as kind of the seal of the Eddic poets, the last and most knowing, teasing out the clearest glimpse of pre-Christian, potentially Christian, prefigured Christian truth by essentially imposing the role of divinely descended, dying but deathless savior of the world on Sigurd? Perhaps, at least a little, or perhaps not. But if so, I think he found it couldn't be made to work terribly well, at least within the parameters that he was willing to accept. Okay, you can spin Sigurd that way a bit, but what about the rest? And that's the problem. The historical Volsung Nibelung poems are about conflicting human loyalty between blood and sworn kin. The prequel saga themes and even specific patterns of events that are then echoed in the final sections on the fall of the Burgundians, um, wrapping those both around the central portion that focuses on the betrayal of Brynhild. Can everybody still hear me? I'm getting some some hiccups possibly in my uh, connections here. My sound is gone. Hello, hello. I'm in and out. I'm in and out. Went very briefly out and in. Do I seem to be back in now? You can hear me, Jen. Great. Well, we're almost we're almost to the end at uh, what I have to say, and then I'll come back to some of these questions. Um, so, like we were saying, the the prequel saga that. You know, the Volsung Nibung Fung is definitely about conflicting human loyalties between blood and sworn kin, um, not about cosmic salvation. The prequel saga that Sigurd's immediate ancestors, um, that tells about Sigurd's immediate ancestors, sets up a lot of the themes and even certain specific events that are then echoed in the final sections on the, the fall of the Burgundians. Sorry, if you're, you're all still hearing, hearing this. Um, and then these sections in the prequel saga and the fall of the Burgundians are wrapped around the central portion focusing on the betrayal of Brynhild. Now, the Volsunga saga author may have melded many of his sources imperfectly, 
but in this overall balance to the construction of the saga, he perhaps achieves a better kind of structure than he is often given credit for. But of course, all the incest and lycanthropy makes odd bedfellows with a Christ-implying version of Sigurd. And then Sigurd the Savior, um, certainly in Tolkien's version, is suddenly gone right in the middle of the narrative. Actually, he's gone in all versions. He's just only really a savior of the world in Tolkien's version. Um, leaving Odin to say at that point, mission accomplished. But nevertheless, with the legend still having plenty of business with the Huns and the fall of the Burgundians, with their own doses of infanticide and cannibalism that we still have to deal with. So as modern English alliterative poetry, I think Tolkien's technical accomplishment in these poems is remarkable and inspiring. Um, his reproduction of the style and impact of the medieval Norse legends is also expertly accomplished. But if he was attempting to impose this new theme of cosmic salvation, um, perhaps he himself found that it sat a little uncomfortably within the framework of the legends themselves. Um, I think he came to recognize this um, as he was working on them, um, as he was finishing them, um, but he did finish them. And though Tolkien's experiments with reworking medieval and traditional tales did not quite end with the poems of the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, I think he realized that these kinds of experiments were increasingly unsuitable for what he really wanted to do, insofar as he might have been able to consciously articulate just what he wanted to do at that time. In the early 1930s, when Tolkien wrote and completed, but then utterly laid aside the poems uh, published in The Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, his tale of Mr. Baggins and his funny ring, um, quite different from Andvari's ring, was drafted, or in at least an advanced state of drafting. And there were still some years that would have to pass before I think he would find it, but this work that he'd been doing on things like the Volsung Niebling legends was, I think, part of what was moving Tolkien towards finding that voice that would bring him to and keep him in all of our attentions ever since. Um, and I think that wraps up just in time, more or less, for some questions. What I have to say uh, about the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun. So let me jump back talked about and see what questions we have here and do please bring in any additional questions we have let me see the sound went off hopefully came back in nobody missed anything uh we talked about tony's question with germanic naming conventions and then we have also from tony general question about norse heritage among the descendant peoples of the norse such as the normans and the post-christian scandinavia i would actually probably distinguish those a little bit but We'll, we can come back to that. How much of a cultural memory of these legends was preserved? Or were they overwritten by classical Christian literature and the stories from their pagan past and generally forgotten except um, in Iceland? Well, the carvings that we have um, from Norway, from Sweden, and Sweden into the, the high Middle Ages, the 13th and 14th century, um, certainly show that the stories remain there. And in fact, the stories, the Volsung Nibelung uh, legends enter into the Scandinavian ballad tradition. And we don't actually, the ballad tradition is thought to have started in the Middle Ages as a sort of, you know, traditional Eddic poetry and scholastic poetry tradition was winding down in continental Scandinavia. Ballads sort of took off. And we have um, other versions of these poems, not only from Iceland, um, we have the, and the pharaohs, lots of ballads from um, the Pharaohs, the Ballad of Regan Smith is a famous one. But there were also ballads based on the Volsung Nibling tradition that carried on through the Middle Ages in 
um, in Scandinavia, in mainland Scandinavia, and were not recorded until modern times, really. So they were still banging around in early modern times and certainly into the 19th century um, in some cases, certainly. So these, these stories remained popular and current. Um, it's hard to really talk about them being perhaps entirely um, you know, cultural memory in Scandinavia, of Scandinavia, because of course some of the, some aspects of them quite possibly are, you know, native Scandinavian mythology, so to speak. Other bits of them are imported from the Germanic speaking, but really a different part of the Germanic speaking world, the, the continental German world. Um, we know that some aspect, uh, some versions of these legends or some parts of them went into Anglo-Saxon England, but they seem to have disappeared from the English kind of literary horizon um, with the Norman conquest, we don't find much sign of them thereafter, although there are some signs that, you know, they were known in in, um, in Viking Age England. Um, and I think that probably gets onto your, your question about the Normans, for example. The Normans were, you know, of Scandinavian descent, but obviously pretty quickly married into, um, you know, the people there in, in Francia, um, you know, post not any more post-Roman Gaul, but, you know, early medieval France. Um, they all end up speaking French, um, you know, there's not a lot of sign of, of, you know, pagan Norse culture being carried on uh, amongst the Normans for very long. Um, some names and so forth, but um, the Scandinavians were actually pretty, pretty happy to integrate um, with people in places where they, they conquered and moved into. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of, of Norse cultural survival necessarily banging around in, in Russia or in Normandy, um, even despite what seems to have been a fairly, you know, significant impact of Norse language and culture in Britain, um, you know, there's there's a lot of Norse that ends up in Middle English, and, and some of it we, we continue to have, you know, prominent parts of English to this day are of obvious Norse influence, but, you know, despite Despite the arguments of some, um, English is not a, a, a Scandinavian language, so it disappears. And I think the Norman conquest, Normans weren't particularly interested in in the Volsung Nibelung legends. They had already, you know, forgotten about those a few generations before. They were no longer a thing in post post Norman conquest England, but they remained a thing in Scandinavia. Um, they remained a thing in medieval Germany too, although it seems like they kind of kind of got diffused a bit. Um, there are later medieval German uh, German versions of the legends, but they they get altered around and changed around a lot and they stop looking as much like the versions that we know from the 13th century. And they seem to have actually, the Nibelungen lead itself was kind of like lost and died out um, at some point and was then rediscovered in the early modern period, but um, it seems to have, to have gone away. But, but Scandinavia hung on to these and hung on to with them for quite a long time. You can go out and listen to um, a, a, uh, sort of, you know, um, heavy metal version of the Ballad of Regan Smither from the Faroese uh, band Tyr, um, with, with its its traditional 19th century melody. I think it's cut down a bit, but, you know, you can argue that it goes on to the present almost, and people still rewrite these stories as novels. And Tolkien, in many ways, is, you know, um, William Morris had tried, you know, to bring the these legends back into the English-speaking world's consciousness. That was one of the things he thought this was the great story of the North, for all that it's, you know, kind of mixed between the North and Germany. And it should be, you know, everybody should know about this, like, you know, people knew about the story of the Trojan horse and so forth. Um, I don't think he really succeeded. I don't think um, Tolkien obviously um, decided that whatever he was thinking about, he might do with these poems. He didn't do it. Um, we've only come out, got them more recently.
Um, so there we go. Ah, Caden asks, and this is actually really a complicated question, um, and one that we've kind of danced around all through these sessions. Is it known where the basic story originated? Iceland, Scandinavia, Germany? Well, what is the basic story here? And uh, you can define that in a couple of different ways. Is it the legend of Brynhild? Well, that seems to have kind of have feet in both Scandinavia and Germany. Um, you know, there's those aspects that look related to Brunichildis and King Sigebert being murdered and all this in sixth century Germany, Francia. Um, part of that, is that part of the, you know, origin of the legend of Brynhild story? Possibly, but then there's also the Brynhild, the Valkyrie part, um, which may have been partially inspired by a German version of that, but also seems related to, you know, mythologically oriented stories about Valkyries and young heroes in, uh, that were common in Scandinavia, but not necessarily in Germany. So there's immersion there. Um, what do we call the basic story? The fall of the Burgundians thing that, uh, with the Huns and all that, that's the most historical part of these legends in some ways. And one of the oldest parts too, um, curiously enough, it clearly comes out of, you know, is related at the very least to um, the historical destruction of the Burgundian kingdom by the Huns in fifth century southern Gaul. Um, but obviously it's not quite that. Things have been changed around and messed around and it's been married to this other um, story which also which is a mix of mythological. You know, Brynhild is a mix of mythological and um, historical elements perhaps. Um, the Fall of the Burgundians is largely just you know a respun historical tale with a focus on individual loyalties and betrayals rather than you know uh, the politics of you know the Huns destroying the Burgundians or whatever it was. Um, probably none of it originated in originated so to speak. I think most there were versions of different parts of these tales banging around well before Iceland was settled. Iceland was settled at the end of the ninth century, the late eight hundreds or thereabouts. And I think this you know some of the that's some of the Scandinavian versions of the story. It's hard to say when Scandinavians started telling these stories, but. but you know, certainly in the Viking Age, if, if not before, um, that's when we have our, our evidence from. So I think these stories were banging around at or shortly after the Vikings got, Vikings, medieval Scandinavians, Viking Age Scandinavians got to Iceland. Um, nevertheless, some of the mythological elements, the whole thing, you know, Valkyries are certainly a Scandinavian thing. Were there equivalents of Valkyries in other parts of Germany? Well, maybe, but in the sixth century, everybody was kind of Christian, pretty much. Um, so there shouldn't have been too many Valkyrie stories banging around, but there would have still been in Scandinavia. Um, myths of Odin and Loki, uh, Loki is himself perhaps a Viking Age thing. Um, Hernir, um, the story of Andvari's treasure, that has no counterpart in um, the German version, so it's probably a Scandinavian edition. You can't really say, you know, the basic story, well, the basic story, even as we discussed it, was, you know, a hero comes to town, gets into the bizarre love polygon, um, he dies, one of the ladies dies, uh, and then the other one ends up in, involved in this other story with the Huns. Um, you know, that's kind of the basic story that we see in the Nibelungen lead and so forth. But even that's two stories welded together, and one of them perhaps has some Scandinavian affinities, even by the time it's welded to the other bits. So. That's the thing, really. Um, that's the question. Your question is really partly the question that philologists wanted to get into. 
what is the single origin? We've got all these different variants and evolved versions, and perhaps if we compare them hard enough, we can work back and find the single version, and we're assuming that there is a single version. Um, and in some cases, we have pieces that may have come from Scandinavia. Other places, we have pieces that may have come from you know, Germany um, or continental Europe. We have pieces that may have come from mythology, the dragon slaying, that's a really old bit of mythology um, to some extent. Um, it's in, you know, Indo-Iranian mythology and ancient Near Eastern mythology. We've got, you know, Tiamat and Indra and all kinds of things going on there. Um, you know, it's related somehow to that. That's obviously a different thing than the historical conquest of the Burgundians in the fifth century by the Huns. So lots of different things coming together. Um, it's a tangle. And it evolves over time, depending on what people want to make with it. And so in that way, Tolkien was very much a doing the same kind of thing that the medieval, uh, his medieval forebears <laughs> working with these stories have been trying to do. Um, you know, he was putting his spin on them. He was taking what he received and saying, well, this is good, but I'm going to try to fix some of the things that don't make sense to me. And I really want to talk about this other thing, which is, to, you know, to some extent what, what everybody before him had been doing too. Um, it's probably worth keeping that in mind. <laughs> so I don't think that exactly answers your question, so to say, say, speak, because is it known where the basic story originated? Yes and no. Um, and where different parts of it originated were different places and different times for different reasons. Um, some of them mythological, some of them historical. And then myth and history comes together into legend and gives us this story. And then Tolkien decided that, well, William Morris had a crack at it. Richard Wagner had a crack at it. I'm going to have a crack on it. And then he decided, but I'm not going to tell you what I decided to do with it. We only know now, of course, in the last, uh, last decade or so. So, let's see. Wow, we've, we've finished with another couple of minutes left. If there are um, no more questions, we can wrap up. But if there are questions, I can't say we can go on and talk about something else. Um, well, we could. There's lots of things we haven't talked about. I mean, when I, we started these sessions, I thought, wow, probably just run through this plot in you know, the first session. What will I do for the next two? But there was a lot to go through and a lot of things we, we haven't looked at. The earlier sections, even if they're not focused on cosmological salvation. There is a lot of far out um, mythological and uh, folkloric stuff going on that we only scratched parts of. Um, the second part is where a lot of our historical messing arounds come in. Um, and we've only kind of touched on a few things there as well. But if nothing else, I hope this, um, this encourages you to go out and uh, and look at perhaps the, some of the medieval versions and look again at, at Tolkien, what he's doing, um, and, and keep them in mind. Keep in mind their place in Tolkien's development as a writer and a creative artist. Oh, here's a question from Tony again. Is there any, and we probably have just enough time in our last minutes before we have to turn this over back to, uh, to Signum to take a look at this. Um, Tony asks, is there any relation between Tolkien's desire to pursue these legends and a desire to save them from their misuse by nationalist groups in the 20s and 30s? That's a good question. And I can't help but think it must have to some extent been in Tolkien's mind. We know from his letters that he was really upset by um, the appropriation of the Germanic past, however romanticized, by 
um, the Nazis in in the the 1930s, certainly probably the 20s as well. Um, and you know, you can argue about Wagner and his connection with the Nazis and things. And, and there's there's an argument that it was really Hitler who was the big Wagner fan and so forth and so on. But it all does get kind of wrapped up. And was Tolkien thinking, oh, I want to save this? Um, yeah, I think he kind of he doesn't talk about the Volsung Nibung legends or his composition of the poems with respect to this in um, his letters. But if you look at Humphrey Carpenter's edition of Tolkien's letters, he does talk about being really upset by this and, and you know, it's a terrible thing. Can he as one guy save it? Um, you know, I don't think, maybe he was thinking about that when he wrote these poems. I'm going to do the proper version, not with all this, you know, weirdness. Um, Tolkien's version is a little bit more ethnically aware, Germanically aware than than some, William Morris, for example, I think, even though he says, "Oh, this is the great story of our race," um, English or Germanic-speaking peoples, William Morris erases almost all reference to places or ethnicities from his his epic version of the poems. Um, so you could do more with that, but you know, I think Tolkien thought of the you know thought of himself as trying to deal with the original proper versions. Of the legends, and perhaps his even his attempt to put a, a slightly Christian anticipatory spin on them was trying to, um, you know, give them what he thought should be, you know, a, a more proper approach to them. I, I can't imagine he wasn't thinking a lot um, about the Nazi appropriation of the romanticized Germanic past uh, for propaganda purposes. I'm, I'm sure he thought about that a lot all the time back then. So perhaps so, but then. And he didn't, you know, he didn't. Maybe he thought, you know, I can't, can't do it, can't do it like this. Um, of course, he did to some extent do that more obliquely eventually through the popularity of the Lord of the Rings. I think Tolkien has probably never been, there's never been so great an advertisement for people being interested in, you know, Old English, Old Norse, Germanic languages, mythology, philology. He is, you know, the greatest recruiting master ever. So perhaps in the end, he, he did. Uh, achieve something of that if it was an intention. Well, anyway, thank you very much, everyone. It's 12 o'clock now. I think we have to uh, to roll things back. I should probably turn the uh, the floor briefly over to to other Carl to say farewell. Um, I think the um, Signum University is going to be using this webinar channel. So um, thank you very much all for um, coming and attending this or anyone or all of uh, our sessions on this. Um, Hope it was interesting and fun. It was, Carl. Thank you so much. Well, see you all around. I'll see you again sometime. Hopefully not in Valhalla. <laughs> Hopefully before then. Goodbye, everyone. If you enjoyed this seminar, please consider making a small donation to Signum University. Your gift will help us continue to make the seminar series and other great content available for free to the public. Just go to signumuniversity.org slash fund slash donate slash seminars. Thanks!